Hello and welcome to the Worst Movies We Own podcast. This is my wife, Natalie Carroll. And I am Bobby Carroll. And this week we are talking about... A Good Day to Die Hard. From what year? 2013. I'm on vacation! (laughs) Natalie, tell the people at home, the hopefuls, what the Worst Movie We Own podcast is all about. All right, Bobby. Well, as a married couple, we watch a lot of films together. And the general idea of this podcast is to watch the worst DVDs we own according to the average rate in each film received on Letterboxd. Um, We're hoping some of these very low-rated films will actually surprise us and not be quite so terrible. We're watching each one with an open mind, even the ones that we've seen before, hoping for the best. We've not bought any of these films specifically for the project. It's a mixture of charity shop finds, random stuff in box sets like sequels, and films that we've bought that other people just don't rate. Lovely stuff. Okay, so we have just watched A Good Day to Die Hard, Die Hard 5. Yeah, Die Hard 5. And um, it was a bit of a stinker. Anything you want to get off your chest? Stinker sums it up quite nicely. I think it is bobbins. I, I was dreading watching it again. Just for the people who don't come from your generation or a specific location, <laughs> is bobbins a good thing? Bobbins is not a good thing. What What is the origin of bobbins? You mean, where, why do people say bobbins? Why do you say bobbins? <laughs> because it just means rubbish. It's just, a word It means rubbish. If I didn't realise it was... Sounds like a lovely word. Like, an, oh, look, I've got a nice bunch of bobbins. Oh, yeah, maybe bobbins are the spools without the thread. And so things that are rubbish, they've got no thread on them. Got and no this, thread. This is threadbare. This is threadbare. We've come full circle background. So yeah. anything in particular you want to get off your chest first straight off the bat, apart from the fact it's not very good? Just, I, I, it, it, it's, why is it a diehard film? I just don't understand. It's, it's barely a diehard film. It is barely a diehard film. You, you go around the video shop... <laughs> Which still exists, and you see all these films. Video shops did not exist. No, (laughs) no, no. (laughs) Just throwing it out there, but go on, carry on. CEX, you might go to CEX and look at the films, and there are all these DVDs with Bruce Willis on the front cover that I've never heard of and look truly awful. Like your director video stuff, like Marauders or The Prince or things we'd never, always seem to have 50 cents in and 50 cents in a roll. Exactly. I'll never watch any of them because I know know how bad they're going to be. The only reason. I've watched this film twice, is that it's affiliated to the Die Hard franchise. Yeah. There is no other reason to watch this film. Mm. And it makes me it makes me quite upset that it is. Because I, I would say, over the course of our relationship, we've been going out at, for 10 years and married for five of those years. Mm-hmm. You've become a Bruce Willis fan over that time. You've like kind of you've mm. started to really love the Die Hard films, not including this one. Not include the, no, yeah. I, 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 you converted me to Die Hard. You know, you know, I love it, and I, the nation loves it. Every, the internationally, Die Hard, one, two, three, and four are are beloved. Sure. Uh, and you like moonlighting, like Bruce Willis in Moonlighting. I like Bruce Willis when he's being fun and and energetic, like Moonlighting, like Hudson Hawk. Hudson Hawk. Last Boy Scout? Last Boy Scout, yeah. You know that there's that Bruce Willis that existed in the past and that you you just want to bring him back out again. But it's not a similar situation to Eddie Murphy, who's someone who was like the biggest star in the world and for some reason the projects he chose or the power he had in those projects meant they weren't very good after a little while. Yeah. And 
but you always want Eddie to make a comeback. Yeah. And he kind of has over the last year with Dolomite Is My Name, yeah. more of that Eddie Murphy, please. Whereas with Bruce Willis, there's a man who's been phoning it in and making, you know, very much paycheck plays for over a decade. Yeah, and he's only got himself to blame, mm. I think. Um, I, I think he he's just turned into a grumpy, bitter old man okay and that is the rock that but he, he's dragged john mcclain down with him and he's turned john mcclain into a an angry bitter old man as well i don't want to watch that yeah i mean there's an alternative reality where someone like uh, arnie or tom Selleck would be john mcclain and do you think we'd still be on to a fifth film now and reviewing it as one of the best films we own do you think i don't know i don't i mean like kind of willis has made john mcclain synonymous with him and he's the first four films, he's brilliant as John McClane. There's signs of rot in the fourth film that completely overpower the fifth film. Okay. Um, a lot of people, when the fourth film came out, oh, this isn't Die Hard, this is rubbish. But to be honest, I can watch Die Hard 4, Live Free and Die Hard, Die Hard 4.0, whatever you want to call it, and really enjoy it as a fun action film with a nice legacy callback to a trilogy of films I really, really enjoy. And while they, it doesn't have the same magic as the original three Die Hard films, uh, certainly not the quality level of the very first one, right. I, I'm quite happy to have that as part of my viewing pattern. If I was to sit down and watch Die Hard box set, four's not the best film, but it's a perfectly adequate final film of the series. I have no memory of four. You'd have no memory no, of four? No, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to contribute to that. Um, I, I know I've seen it, I just can't remember it. Okay, well, he, he, um, he's called out to arrest the hacker... And Timothy Oliphant yes. is uh, hacking America, taking away all its infrastructure and resources. Oh. And somehow his daughter also gets caught up and kidnapped. And then John McClane gets into various action sequences to save these this young hacker and his daughter, yeah. um, including having a fight at the end with a jump with a fighter jet. Is there a tunnel? I remember there, a tunnel. There, there's, there's definitely tunnels in it, and he, yeah. that has a lovely actual John McClane moment we don't see in this film where he's kind of muttering to himself about how shitty the situation is yeah. and it reminds you of John McClane in the air vent in the Nakatomi Tower or uh, John McClane running around on, in the subways of the airport uh, or in Die Hard 2 or John McClane muttering at Samuel L. Jackson and trying not to be racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that's something that they try to recapture in this film and they do do certain things which are reminiscent of the other Die Hard films so you know it's a Die Hard film. Um, where he is, he does have a little mutter to himself, but of course that dries up when it essentially becomes a buddy film with his own son. I mean, they do try and have the muttering, but what it comes because it's a film edited to the, an inch of its life, mm. Die Hard 5, it just appears like an old man sh- shouting out sound bites that don't actually really marry up to what you're watching. Yeah. And it certainly hasn't got that nice poetry of dialogue that John McClane of the 80s and 90s had that you kind of here's a guy who just can't believe the situation he's in whereas in this one it is literally like an old man who probably votes for Trump shouting weird shit during the worst traffic jam ever (laughs) that is a very strange bit of the film it's a very long bit it's with the first like really big action sequence where you've got him his son and the Rus- one of the Russians, Russian villains, villains yeah. um, driving along, mm. all talking to themselves, mm. and it, it not making sense. No, I mean, it makes no sense for him to be in the action sequence. His son's trying to escape yeah. Russian terrorists who want to kill the um, political prisoner he's with. 
John McClain has turned up to see his son get arrested or executed or sent to life for prison. I don't yeah, see why not... he's got well, over. he's on vacation. He's on vacation is what he keeps saying, which he seems to have forgotten why <laughs> he's visited Russia in the first place. And he decides to steal a truck and follow the action, causing more chaos. Yeah. And, it, and to me, that is the exact opposite of John McClane. John McClane is the hero who, while carnage does happen in his wake, he's trying to save people, people he loves and the hostages from a horrible terrorist situation. Yeah. Whereas in this, I think everyone would have been better off if John McClane didn't visit Moscow. Yeah. A lot of innocent bystanders died just from his bad driving. Well, that's it. And, and numerous times in the film, he's, he's, he's warned not to go looking for trouble or, you, you know, it, yeah. it, it suggests that he, this is what John McClane does, but he doesn't go looking for trouble. In any of the other films, trouble finds him. Yeah. And in this one, he is just putting his nose in where it's not wanted. If anything, a lot of the time in that first half hour, which is probably the best half hour of the film, I'd say, Yeah. he feels like one of those um, horrible terrorists who steal a truck and plough into a crowd full of yes. people, but he's doing it for 20 minutes. Essentially, in this film, John McClane is a terrorist attacking Russia because he doesn't like their benevolent dictatorship political system. Yeah, no, that is pretty much the takeaway from that, isn't it? Cool. Should we do some facts and figures? Okie dokie. Uh, I don't think we need to explain what Die Hard is to anyone. It is such a brilliant and beloved franchise, but I think all of you at some point have seen a Die Hard film and enjoyed it. If you're listening to this going, what is Die Hard? What's, what, how, what is a Die Hard film? What is a Bruce Willis? You're possibly listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> uh, you're not going to get a lot out of this. Turn it off now. Go listen to a podcast about something you're into. Um... Die Hard, A Good Day to Die Hard. Die Hard 5 was directed by John Moore, quite a hacky director, directed The Omen remake. Oh, really? Uh, Behind Enemy Lines, which is probably his only film that's original IP, Okay. even though it seems like a remake of Back 21 to me, um, and things like Max Payne, the video game mm. adaptation, and uh, IT with Pierce Brosnan that we've never watched, but probably would watch at some point. Oh, yeah. One of those later career Pierce Brosnan thrillers. Yeah. Um... Written by Skip Woods, the guy who wrote Swordfish and okay. one of the Wolverine prequels. And he's also part of uh, Bruce Willis's Entourage. So there's a famous story during Die Hard 4 where uh, Kevin Smith's filming a scene with Bruce Willis because Kevin Smith's in Die Hard 4 as well right. as a hacker. Right, okay. Uh, and Skip Wood comes up in it. I think maybe we'll talk about that when we're discussing what went wrong with the film a little bit sure. more. But Skip Wood's possibly being basically... Uh, part of the Bruce Willis uh, enterprise, mm-hmm. has a lot to play, a lot to blame with this, so we're going to talk about him a little bit more in depth. Yeah. The film stars Bruce Willis, Jay Courtney. Jai. Jai. Well, do you know what? I'm Who not going to say his well because <laughs> he's killed two beloved franchises, in my opinion, <laughs> if not three. Cole Horser, uh, Julia Snigger, Sebastian Koch. Uh, don't look at my notes and say I've spelt the names wrong. You know I'm not going to pronounce the names right if I've never heard them said. No, I know. For you, uh, I, I, don't, I think your hit rate's not too great. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, hung, right. a lot of Hungarian names. Uh, M-E-W, which stands for Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Have yeah. I got that name wrong? No, you've got that right. I I'd never get that one. Right. And Pasha Liknivkov. I wrote his name down too because I love him. <laughs> well, he's brilliant. We're going to talk about. I think we're going to talk about him on a specific question. Yeah. <laughs> I think he's coming up. Yeah. Uh, music by Marco Marco Beltrami, who's like an action movie uh, music guy. Okay. I, I liked it. I thought he the score's one of the good yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, it's very loud. Uh, filmed by a guy called Jonathan Seller. No idea. Mm. Uh, it came out, and you will know this, on Valentine's Day in 2013 around the world, and we I know it was Valentine's Day because we went to see it first showing. 
February 14th oh. on Valentine's Day together. Oh, lucky me. I think this is the first film we've um, covered where we've actually sat down and watched it together first for the first time ever. Oh. Uh, before. Okay, So there we go. Nice. So, and thank you for going to see this on Valentine's Day. I had no idea what I was letting you into yeah. at the time. Um, it made 36 million at the American box office on its opening weekend, mm. uh, closing at 67 million. So they, again, didn't even have a times two multiple, which is mm. really bad for a film. Uh, topping out at 304 million worldwide. The Chinese liked it. It was very, like, globally. Mm. Uh, we'll discuss the release of it, I think. It's something quite interesting to talk about uh, when we get a little break. Okay. Internet movie database users give it an average of 5.3. Not great. Pretty bad score, but not as bad as I was expecting, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and Letterboxd, dreaded 1.9, same mm-hmm. as Basic Instinct 2. Right. And The Omen 4. Uh, and while I would say it's a better made film than those two films, I hate it more. Yeah. We went to see this together. I, you sound like you don't have any memory of this Valentine's Day. I don't remember it was Valentine's Day, um, but I remember going to see the film at the cinema. Yeah, we went to see it at the Cineworld Trocadero. Yeah, oh, that's nice. Yeah, which is now torn down and turned into a very posh picture house. We can't afford to go there anymore. Very lovely. We don't live near it anymore, but the Trocadero used to be one of our two kind of main cinema stomping grounds when we lived together in Camden, wasn't it? Yeah, happy memories. And I've always loved the Trocadero. Since I opened as a teenager, it's great. It's a shame that it's been turned into a slightly more gentrified experience for people. Um, The reason I want to talk about the release pattern is this... Die Hard 5, they clearly knew, Fox clearly knew, they had a stinker on their hands. Mm-hmm. Because everything they did about this film when it was released suggests they want to maximise that profit in the opening weekend. Such as? Such as. 90 minutes long. So you can get five or six showings a day before the bad word gets out. Ah, uh, right, I see. So, and you can tell watching the film, it's a film that's cut down to its bare bones. Yeah. There is an extended version on the Blu-ray we just watched with more car chase, a bit more swearing, a bit more gore. Uh, um, but it doesn't have any Mary Elizabeth Winstead in it, so I decided to go for the theatrical version. Oh, and right. I, for some reason, they cut out Mary Elizabeth Winstead and have more action. Okay. Or carnage, because let's be honest, action suggests a character trying to achieve something through <laughs> yeah. kinetic movement, whereas a lot of what this film is, is just things being destroyed for the sake of it. Yeah, and that explains why for a film that has so much action in it, it's actually really... Boring. Yeah, it's, it's gen- genuinely. I mean, any if you were to look at any two seconds of it, you said that's an impressive production. Mm-hmm. But sitting through the ninety-one minutes of the thing, it's it's just soulless. Yeah. Um, other things they did uh, didn't show it to any reviewers or critics. They had to go buy their right. own ticket. Probably when we were in the Trocadero watching it at twelve twenty on Friday the fourteenth, uh-huh. Mark Commode and Robbie Collins and all your film reviewers were in there too, having to have bought a ticket <laughs> to go see it. Because it's probably quite near to their offices, the Trocadero one. We probably saw it with yeah. Barry Norman um, Siskel and Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> um, so and that's generally something they they only really do if it's a horror film. They you know, short running time, released around the world at the same point. Um, so the bad word can't get out put an embargo on reviews so they knew they had a bad film in Britain we got a different version of the rest of the world because they wanted to release it as a 12 in Britain rather than a 15 they released it as a 12 so they cut out all the swearing and all the violence like they did live free and die hard the DVD version you can have a bit more gore and swearing Um, this idea of making adult films as accessible as possible to kids 
thinking there's a bit more box office in it. Yeah. I think it turns away a lot of the core franchise goers. Um, well, yes, especially for a film that people are going to go and see on a Friday night or a Saturday night as a date film mm. in the evening. So you're going to get plenty of adults in to see it. Why? Yeah, why I mean, John, John Wick's proven there's, there's a market for a hero we like in big, dirty action uh, that's violent and enjoyable. Yeah. And it's still a viable, you know, way to make box office now. But obviously there's these cold feet on this film that was like... Yeah, I don't think we want to risk restricting any audience from this. Uh, very popular in China, and it's quite a glossy film, quite special effects driven, and that seems to be what the Chinese market really likes. Right. Not really that bothered about plot or character, but love a good big special effect. Yeah. And that's the epitome of this film, which is frustrating because Die Hard as a franchise, up until that point, is a rich tapestry of characters yeah. with lovely emotional beats, a real dry, dirty sense of humour, and you could watch Die Hard 1 as a drama, yeah. as a disaster movie drama. Yeah. Uh, and the action secondary to that. Uh, this film, it's hard to say what you could take away from it. Um, so yeah, obviously a film that Fox spent a lot of money on and then literally just fucking dumped out there almost as a smash and grab to get as much money as they could off four days, mm-hmm. knowing they weren't going to make that much more yeah. around the world. Um, cool. What did you like? Huh. What did I like? The Do notebook you, is coming open. I quite open. liked uh, Moscow. Yeah. I, I wouldn't have set a diehard film in Moscow. I wouldn't have chosen that as an option. I don't think it was a good idea to set it there. But I like the fact that you see a lot of Moscow. And mm-hmm. presumably a lot of that is actually Moscow rather than... I think it's from Budapest. Oh, is it? Yeah, oh, okay. sorry. Oh, well, that's, that's a shame. Uh, then there's nothing I like. <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing. I mean, obviously the the initial traffic jam he's caught yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, any aerial shots that are showing famous yeah. sites, presumably it's mm. Moscow. We've Neither of us have been to Russia. No. We're, we're quite well-travelled people, but Russia's somewhere we've never been to. Yeah. I'd love to go there, and yet in films, Moscow does look like, outside of the uh, Kremlin Red Square, it looks like a bit of a shithole. Yeah, I think it is. But, but I don't know if I'm confusing to... it with Budapest. No, well, it's possible. <laughs> Um, well, St. Petersburg is a beautiful city, yeah. and, and then you go to Moscow whilst mm. you're in the country, I suppose. Uh, I think we're gonna, we do this podcast essentially fun. We're never going to start begging, going, fund our Kickstarter or no. cat food, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, if, if anyone like, kind of wants to get rid of like 10 grand and send us off to Moscow and St. Petersburg, oh, we'll, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. do that. We'll do some research or something. Yeah, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do some podcasts there. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> cat food, please. Um, so you like nothing about the film at all hold on (laughs) Uh, I liked one particular scene in the film but I think perhaps we're going to talk about that at another point so I won't are we talking about a taxi scene we're talking about a taxi scene that's that's definitely coming up in a question we we can't do a whole podcast about a character we like from Deadwood no (laughs) (laughs) I can't find anything that I've written down that's positive then this is dead air right now let's move on yeah. i um yeah i i would struggle to say as much about the film i liked i mean yeah it's a it's a real spit in the eye for a franchise that it, i'm a massive fan of yeah um it's frustrating as well because you can see times when they could have made so much more of certain aspects of the film like for instance the fact that John McClane is in Russia. He's that kind of um, fish out of water. Yeah. And that's all... It replicates the mm. Die Hard 1, where he's, yeah. he's a New York cop and... Yeah. He's, he's a working-class guy yeah. in, in a corporate 
international atmosphere, yeah. Yeah, and California baffles mm. him. Yeah. So surely there could be some fun to be had from him arriving in Russia and experiencing Russia, and that just never happens. It never happens. It's really, it's really, really frustrating yeah. how little Moscow plays into uh, the film. He, you know, everyone speaks English. Yeah, even which, to each other yeah. when there's only Russians <laughs> in the room. Um, and um, it's, yeah, it's just disappointing that essentially once uh, all the pieces are in place for the action to start, the whole idea of Die Hard in another country uh, is just lost. Yeah, and there are other times as well where it, it, there's, there's a hint of some humour or a funny situation arising, like when he realises for the first time that Jag Courtney is CIA, mm. which you'd think he'd already know, but when he goes into the room and sees all the CIA stuff, yeah. and it's kind of like a really cheap version of Mission Impossible, yeah. he starts making a few jokes and making a few comments that would work, and then it's just over. But it would be funny. Yeah. And... Well, I mean, part, part of the fun of the Die Hard franchise up to that point is John McClane's stuck in a situation where he has to improvise. Um, he's got barely any weapons and no shoes in the first Die Hard and he solves little Boy Scouty ways yeah. of like defeating the terrorists each time that isn't always I will shoot my gun at them until yeah. they go away um, and that kind of carries on over the other ones he's got to solve Simon's puzzles in yes. Die Hard with a Vengeance and even in Live Free and Die Hard where he's essentially has been a cop doing his job in an extreme circumstance it's the mm-hmm. first time I've ever really seen him do that in the full film he's still like kind of figuring out how he can take out a helicopter with just a car and stuff like that and it's fun in this film, 30 minutes in, suddenly they're in a room full of gadgets that solve every problem they have for the next five minutes, which you know completely takes away what Die Hard is of like a man having to survive on his wits alone. Yeah. Um, and so it almost makes his son's character the opposite of what he is. Yes. Um, and even that's not really explored again after that. They try to pick up on the idea by having... John McClane finding simple, straightforward ways of solving problems yeah. that Jack Courtney can't, mm. even though he's in the CIA, like bribing a guy yeah. to get to where they want to I don't be. even know. I don't even think they have to bribe a guy to get into that laundry room. No, I don't, I don't <laughs> think so either. That doesn't really make sense. But that's the idea behind it. There's mm. another... T- where he finds the car keys instead of breaking into the yeah, car. Yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. But they're too few and far between to become a, a running joke. Yeah. So it doesn't really work. But that is the point. That the whole point it is really the point of the film that um, they're two completely different. They, they might both be good guys, but mm. they come from it in two completely different ways. Yeah, but eventually they realise John McClane's way of shoot everything. <laughs> New John McClane or old yeah. John McClane or gammon John McClane. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, is the best way to solve any any problem. And you know, kind of, we know that's not really what we want from a diehard film. But yeah, the. The Russia concept is completely wasted. The yeah. man surviving um, by the skin of his teeth horrible situations is lost because you know, John McClane essentially is Bugs Bunny in this. Mm-hmm. He can survive helicopters crashing into yeah. him, glass being shattered over him, bullets being fired at him. He can he just stand over there. quite a bit. He gets hit by many, many big cars. <laughs> and it's, yeah, he's, he's, he's invincible. He's, you know... It's it's ridiculous. He's itchy and scratchy, and not in a fun way. Um, the tagline for the film was "Yippee Kaye, Mother Russia," and something so mm-hmm. not delivered on. Yeah. Uh, the only the only Russian bit that I really quite enjoyed is towards the end. There's a man with kind of really good kind of uh, 
Russell, so Soviet Union tats yeah. guiding a truck and you kind of go oh yeah why isn't why isn't he fucking bantering with people like that a bit more yeah <laughs> that's that's kind of more what you want from a diehard film uh-huh. um okay so this is going to be a longer part of the conversation what didn't you like right well there's no point in going into the nitty-gritty of, of everything that's wrong with it the, the film really does rely on suspension of disbelief a lot and I know that going to see an action film you're always going to have things that happen that are ridiculous but there are uh, so many if this was an 80s action film made before the year 1988 when Die Hard came out mm-hmm. it's actually quite a good average action film of that you'd see Arnie or Sly star in where they're just invincible and chaos falls in their wake and you're just enjoying the destruction and the carnage but that's not what this series is about well no and if if, if you are going to ask people, if you are going to ask that of people to not care too much about the plot, mm. you have to deliver on the other things like mm. the action and or the or the humour or whatever, and yeah. it just doesn't. Um, Jai Courtney, I, I know you hate him more than I do. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I, he's not like a James Corden. I wouldn't spit in his eye in the street and call him a cunt. No. One thing I have done. Jai Courtney was a bit of a Colin Farrell uh, in that for about five years of Colin Farrell's career, you got the feeling that he was often casting roles when the person they really wanted wasn't available and he built up his stardom being second choice in things like Hearts War and Minority Report and the like right. and then eventually became a star in his own right and yeah, just to go completely off piece from Die Hard 5 um, you know, Colin Farrell's got a fantastic career now he's, uh, he seems to really embrace being in indie stuff yeah. and not playing particularly likeable characters anymore or being a movie star Yeah, and he, he's brilliant now in yeah, a way well, that he's gone through his own Matthew McConaughey renaissance that no one seems to have really noticed yeah but I think he deserves it I think he does too I really like Colin Farrell yeah. he's our he's our kind he's good people yes. he's our kind of person but Joe Courtney he's not that guy you don't see any spark of life or excitement no. about him and so when you see him in a film especially when it's a big franchise film you get the feeling they just needed to make a film and they cast the last person available. Yeah. Um, and if anything, he's like a real red light, a real warning sign that this was a film that got made through compromises rather than good choices. Yeah. Um, obviously, Jai Courtney wasn't the only person offered the role of John McClane's son. No. I mean, and let's just take a moment to say when they cast John McClane's daughter, Lucy McClane, yeah. they absolutely nailed it because they got Mary Elizabeth Winstead in and everyone loves Winstead. Uh-huh. Do you love Winstead? I, I like her. Yeah, you, Fargo turned you around in there, didn't she? Oh, yeah, she's very good in that. Uh, but, um, you know, massive Mary Elizabeth Winstead fan. Good choice, good choice. Um, so, in terms of alternative choices, these are the people who are up for the role, maybe did a screen test for it. Mm-hmm. Aaron Paul. Okay. Bitch. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Liam Hemsworth. Okay. The, the best Hemsworth. Yeah. Um, just because I'm never sure. James Badgedale, who's too old. I don't know who he is. Uh, he's often sheriff or marine in stuff. He was famous for most people being uh, Jack's partner in series three of twenty four. All right, but uh, Paul Walker. Someone we'll come back to. It's worth discussing. Paul Walker. I've never seen him in a film. You've definitely seen Paul Walker. Never in a seen film. him in a film. Don't I know who he is? Okay. But I've never seen him. In or a was film. Ben Foster. Okay. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> it was slightly edgy choices. Slightly edgy. Well, wait till you hear the next one. Okay. Dano. Paul Dano. No. Yeah, get Dano in. In the CIA? Yeah, get Dano <laughs> in. Uh, and Tim, Justin Timberlake. Oh, 
which he, I, I think oh, every time we every time we discuss a film from this period, the male <laughs> lead or second lead always seems to be, and Justin Timberlake auditioned. Right. He must have done so many auditions oh, in the last fifteen years for films he never got. Yeah, and yeah, Timberlake's a good kid. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's alright. He's been good in films as well. Okay, so that's. You know, those those are the people who officially were in running for the role and somehow yeah. Jay Courtney beat him out. And I can understand why you'd cast Jay Courtney in terms of he looks like an action hero. Yeah. He's big, he's muscly, he's got a similar haircut and blank smugness as Bruce Willis now does. Yeah. Not the sparkling moonlight in Last Boy Scout, John McClane, we know, uh-huh. but Bruce Willis who's been phoning it in for the last twenty years. Well you wouldn't want to show him up. Well, exactly. <laughs> I think if, you know I'm not going to say there's a chemistry or a spark between the two of them, but, you know, clearly they've cast someone who is going to match the rhythm of the man. Yeah. Who's now, you know, half-arsedly turning up for die-hard films. Yeah, yeah. Fair and we'll discuss Bruce Willis's, like, kind of complete lack of motivation, yeah. apart from money, yeah. uh, event soon. Um, but, you know, kind of... I think there's a way you could solve this problem. One, one of the biggest ways you can solve the issue of you've got to cast John McClane's son, he's a massive part of the film, is you go as big as possible. Yeah. You go for someone of that generation of, like, pr- pretty much someone my age. Yeah. And you go for the biggest star you can. So who would you go Do you know for? who I'm thinking of? Who? Biggest star. Biggest star. Go I think on. someone who has to be kind of in a kid in sort of the early, late 80s. Yeah. Teenager at the turn of the millennium. Okay. Just Jason Biggs. Jason Biggs. The pie fucker himself. Interesting. Uh, Biggest star. Okay. Would have been quite a different film. Would have, would have been a brilliant film. Yippee pie <laughs> <laughs> Okay, who's, who's your choice for... for uh... Okay, I, I have a genuine choice. Okay. However, I wouldn't want this person to be dragged down by the film or have to associate with Bruce Willis. Okay. But Chris Pine. Chris Pine. Any of the Chris's. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I'm going to point out, much like James Spader, you seem to want Chris Pine in every film we discuss. Well, yeah, but I think that you could probably make any film or remake any film with Spader and Pine, mm. just playing all the relevant ages. I, I, I'm I, going to veto Pine or Evans or Pratt, any of the Chris's, because they, they would have been good casting yeah. in terms of audience enjoyment, us liking yeah. it. But as a match to Bruce Willis, no. I think if you're going to do this, I'm going to stick with my original thought, and, but be serious this time. Yeah. You've got to go as big as possible. Like, genuinely, it's got to be like Sean Connery playing Harrison Ford's dad in Last Crusade. It's yeah. got to be the biggest person of that generation, DiCaprio. You throw 35 million at them, it's going to keep them in supermodels for a couple of years, and you cast DiCaprio as Bruce Willis's son. That's ridiculous. It's, I mean, imagine the box office. Well, yeah, but... It's not his role. It's not his. He's done action in Blood Diamond and. Um, yeah, but there's an ethics. Body of to Lies. That. <laughs> <laughs> He's been Daddy Hatcher. That's a terrible choice. I, 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 if you said DiCaprio is playing John McClane's son and using all his intense acting ability <laughs> to make that a workable role, take my money. I it would see. be the movie event of the year. I, did, I can see a parody of this film with him in that, but it, it's just a, that would just be a joke. That would be ridiculous. Like I say, Connery, Ford, I think Willis, you, DiCaprio. I think you're close <laughs> with Jason Biggs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Jay Courtney is a big problem with the film. Um, the action is spectacular, but pretty 
uninvolving. Yeah. Um, it is just destruction. It um, is. Shall we, shall we talk about Willis? Okay. Uh, I mean, I would say the biggest problem with the film, from creative decisions to who you're following in the film, is Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not the Bruce Willis of the 90s up until, say, Unbreakable. No. Who seemed to make really interesting projects. And occasionally, he does occasionally do interesting things. Like, he was in Marvelous Brooklyn with Edward Norton. He was in Moonrise Kingdom in a smaller role. Okay, yeah. Wes Anderson. It's not like Bruce Willis has completely given up the ghost of being respectable. Yeah. But we know that here's a man for the last ten years, and during the period of this film made, it's quite happy to take a million dollars for a day's work to be three scenes in a rubbish film shot in Budapest. The only problem with this film is he's in 50 scenes phoning it in like that for a film shot in Budapest. <laughs> is he in a similar situation to those other actors who have IRS issues or... or I don't, I don't think, I don't think like so. That. I think he's just, he, he's just found a very nice niche for his accountant mm. where he can make 50 films a year doing one day's work, which is better for him than doing... Three films a year of quality. Yeah, but who's ever going to make a quality film with him now? Then I think I think he, he unlike Cage, you could have a comeback because he's in a similar boat. He just has to keep working yeah. because of tax reasons. And Wesley Snipes is in the same boat as well. Yeah. I don't think this is the case with Willis. I think he's literally just decided this is the least amount of work I need to be put in to keep the lifestyle I want. Right. Unless he owes Demi Moore a load of money in terms of alimony, I've just thought of another excellent casting for his son. Oh, go on, Ashton Kutcher. Ashton Kutcher. They get along. Oh, yeah. It'd be weird. It'd be really good fun. But, yeah, I could see that. That's yeah. what they should have done. They should have cast Ashton Kutcher. Because Ashton Kutcher will be in any old shit. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, Willis is someone who has, like, kind of sold the birthright, given up the yeah. franchise. Um, you know when you, you go down certain high streets and you see a subway opposite another subway and you go, whose fucking idea was it to open one subway opposite... Who can't cross the street to eat a Greg's or a Subway's <laughs> or a Starbucks? Yeah. And Bruce Willis is like that. He's in so much now, and you know it's not good, yeah. that even if he was to come back and make a really good Die Hard 6 or a film of the quality of uh, Unbreakable or The Last Boy Scout or 12 Monkeys, mm-hmm. who'd turn up for it? Yeah. Genuinely, would it even make it to the shelves of Tesco's as a £10 risky buy? Mm-hmm. Um, and here's a man who literally phones in a performance for... you. There's a few scenes that are supposed to have an emotional depth to them. Yeah. How do you feel about those? Well, well, it it, it just doesn't work mm. for me. Mm. Um, I think, as well, with the emotionality of the Die Hard franchise, the only emotion you want to see is between him and Holly. Yeah, get Holly back. Yeah. Mm. But she ain't coming back. She ain't coming back. She's got bigger fish to fry. She might be dead. She, uh, Bonnie Bedelia. No, not Bonnie Bedelia. Holly. Holly. No, they refer oh, to no, her in the film. They refer to her in the film. But yeah, I mean, if you can't get Bonnie Bedelia back, maybe the family route isn't the best way to go for the, the next instalment of this. No. Or, you know, make that leap into the 21st century, have Mary Elizabeth Winstead graduate to becoming the CIA the, person because she did something with computers maybe I can't remember I think she was at uni but I don't remember what her yeah. course was no she, she wasn't yeah. a hacker she sure. found, she's going out of a hacker if she sticks with Justin Long at the end of Die Hard oh Ball. Justin Long yeah. yeah yeah. so but I would say watching this um, in terms of Bruce Willis there's scenes where he's required to act rather than just shout a sound bite out that's yeah. supposed to be a funny one liner but it isn't 
and he can't even look the camera or the actor he's with, who's usually Jay Courtney, yeah. in the eye. <laughs> he, he, he looks as if he's just mentally composing a shopping list for later on. Yeah. He says, I definitely need eggs. <laughs> I think I've got enough milk, but I definitely need eggs. <laughs> but he just doesn't... He, Bruce Willis as an actor doesn't do that anyway, does he? I mean, I he's don't, not. I mean, if you look at the live wire the man was in the original Die Hard 3, he's... Yeah, He's he's certainly not phoning it in during those films. There's a lot no, of he's not. But there's not there's not a lot of call for him to be emotional or dramatic. He's not yeah, that I, kind of actor. Can I remind you at the end of Die Hard Two, Die Harder? Yeah. He saved Holly's plane and he's <laughs> running through the snow, screaming Holly. Yeah. And you know, I yeah, I'm a stone. Usually, yeah. I'm made of granite. Mm-hmm. End of Die Hard Two, crying like a little bitch every time. Yeah, but I'm not with you on that <laughs> <laughs> well you're wrong yeah <laughs> um, but yeah Bruce Willis is an issue but he's not just an issue in the fact that you've got a star and a lead who just doesn't give a shit about what he's doing on screen yeah I think there's an even bigger issue and this is where we're going to come to the Skips Woods story of it, things he's got his entourage his brother is a producer on the film mm-hmm. what's his brother doing that he's got a producer credit on this film money yeah exactly it's a pay it's um it's an entourage payroll yeah glamour you've got to throw him a million my brother's got to feel like he's a producer yeah and then if you have an extra cook even if they're just there for vanity's sake they're gonna have suggestions that have to annoyingly be listened to mm-hmm. if you've got skip woods as the writer who only works with bruce willis now in the same way that um Tom Cruise has got Chris McQuarrie, the guy who wrote Usual Suspects, but now makes all the Mission Impossible films. Yeah. That's a really good creative partnership they've got there. He yeah. comes in, he either creates a script for Tom Cruise's next franchise film or helps buff up that film. And it seems to work really well because you get like kind of his excellent work on things like Edge of Tomorrow or any of the Mission Impossibles or Jack Reacher films. Mm-hmm. So you, Tom Cruise has found someone he can trust to make sure the project they're working on is Tom Cruise worthy? Yeah. Something that he maybe didn't have during those 10 years of wilderness when he was making things like Night and Day and the like. Uh-huh. Bruce Willis has got his one. It's a guy called Skip Woods who's written a bad Wolverine prequel mm-hmm. and Swordfish, which we both don't really enjoy that much. That's the John Travolta, Hugh Jackman hacking film. Oh, I hate that. Film. Yeah, exactly. Similar film to this. Glossy, kinetic, but not a lot of life to it. Yeah. Um, and this is where I'm going to bring up the Kevin Smith story. Do you know the Kevin Smith story about uh, filming on Die Hard 4? No. So, Bruce Willis and Kevin Smith got along during the film in the Die Hard 4, but there was a oh. moment during Kevin Smith's scenes in the film where they were held up for days because Bruce Willis didn't like something happening in the script. I think it was possibly the fact that Kevin Smith had all the funny lines in the scene. Right. Uh, going by memory. Kevin Smith turned around and you know tried to find solutions to this, but eventually Skip Woods his kind of travelling script doctor came along and found solutions. The producers weren't massively happy with that as a solution, Uh, so there was deadlock, and Mm -hmm. nothing was being filmed for quite a long time on set, on a production where probably a day costs a million dollars. And eventually the problem was solved when Bruce Willis said to the producers, okay, if you don't want to go my way, who's your second choice to play John McClane? (laughs) Which, you know, is a balls-out... I've got, I've got the best hand in poker move. Yeah. But if you have that power on a production, but your brother's a producer, the, the thing's being written by the guy in your pocket and you know they can't make a diehard film without you. Yeah. Then how often is a film being shot and changed on the whim of a star 
who really probably only cares about how much he's been paid at the end of the day. Yeah. And it, I think... Should we talk about Pasha's scene now? Okay. Okay. So we have a question that's regular in the podcast. I think it's always going to be a regular, and it is, who's the John Totoro of the film? Yeah. Who's doing really hard work to make a really good film uh, when everything else is going wrong? Um, and John Turturro is always a really good example of this because he just puts in an exciting performance. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of really good actors in this film. Mary Elizabeth Winstead's always good fun. Mm-hmm. Sebastian uh, Cock. Uh, We've not even mentioned Sebastian Cock. Sebastian Cock plays the villain. Yeah. Uh, surprise villain, but you know from oh, the start yeah. he's Bill Claying them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit of diehard one parlance there. Good bit of old William Clay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's other, there's other people like Cole Holser who always put in a good shift, but yeah, don't particularly impress in this. Yeah. But, there's one scene where Bruce Willis at the very beginning is in a taxi, arrived in Moscow, trying out his Russian, trying to get to a courthouse, and he meets... Pasha Lushnikov. From Deadwood. From Deadwood. Yeah, and every film where they've needed like a, a likeable Russian. Yeah. He's, a, he's a brilliant character actor. He's got a lovely face, he's a very warm presence, he's yeah. lots of fun. The film literally spikes at that point. Yeah. It's a scene that belongs in a much better film. Because it comes so early, and probably about a scene after Mary Elizabeth Winters in the film, yeah. there's a little bit of me right up that for you. Maybe I was too harsh the first time I saw this. Mm-hmm. Maybe I watched it in a bad mood. These two scenes I've really enjoyed. Yeah. This scene's fantastic. Uh-huh, exactly. But even that scene has got the fingerprints of a Bruce Willis decision in it, I think. I mean, a forger's note that someone's got too much power on the film. Yeah. Because uh, Pasha... Mm-hmm. is in his taxi he's in the cab he seems a bit Frank Sinatra he mm-hmm. has a little bit of fun it feels it feels like a scene from a Die Hard film mm-hmm. because you've got a quirky character who's not essential but full of life yeah full of like vim and vigour and if it was full of if the film was full of scenes of Bruce Willis interacting or killing people like that <laughs> yeah. it would be a great film uh-huh. and then at the end of the taxi ride he goes you have it for free you let me sing and I reckon that was very much the decision made but John McClane has to win this situation, so we can't have him pay the taxi driver. (laughs) So even though the the guy sitting in the back seat looks like John McClane, but is a complete personality vacuum, (laughs) this taxi driver, whose bread and butter is driving tourists around probably, has gone, you don't have to pay. Just so it feels like a Bruce Willis victory, that little scene where he's acted off the fucking screen Mm -hmm. by a brilliant character actor. Um, Someone, right, Pasha... I'm not going to say a surname, a film where he's the star, he's the lead. Yeah. I'd love to watch it. He's, he's, he's just a warm, beautiful presence. He is. Whenever he crops up in a TV episode of something, it just it, you're just so happy that he's there. And, and he's great in Deadwood as well. And uh, much like Bruce Willis is always going to be in demand to make a free scene cameo as a drugs kingpin or a mm-hmm. DEA agent. You always you're, need a Russian. You're always going to need a Russian. Yeah. Why not go for the best one, get Pasha in, yeah. give him a couple of extra scenes, let him fly. Mm-hmm. Brilliant stuff. <laughs> Okay, hopefuls are going to enjoy this one. Worst instant of product placement. Now, you said you didn't notice anything to me just now. Yeah, I, d- I, d- I don't notice these things, um, unless it's very, very obvious and repeated many times. I'm not really going to notice product placement. Well, I would say, if anything, the Mercedes Jeep range is pretty sturdy. It could take on military vehicles three times its size. Right, That's <laughs> the, the, that raises an interesting point, though. I don't care about the product placement aspect of it, but... the. I, I would imagine that kind of anyone who did enjoy this film, the audience, target audience maybe, or the or just the ones who did enjoy it, mm. are exactly the kind of people who would know what types of cars cars are, okay. or armoured vehicles, or guns, because there are so many guns in this film, okay. so many different types of guns. Surely, if you are going to kiss out your henchman, 
You just buy them all the same gun. Like, you get a job lot. They're, I've, maybe they're mercenaries who, like, all come who with bring their, their own, their own kit, gun. Bring their own kit. And then it's tax deductible at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it works. Uh, okay. Uh, why, why worse than product placement? I can't say for sure mm-hmm. whether it was, but... Um, John McClane sticks out like a sore thumb in Russia because, as we know from films, everyone in Russia either wears a tracksuit or a very slick suit. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. Whereas John McClane is in Marks and Spencer's finest Blue Harbour the entire <laughs> way from dressing appropriate for his age yeah. and looking like a man who possibly has just done a bit of gardening. Yeah, it's very comfortable what he's wearing, like a nice granddad shirt. I'm probably about five years away from being in the Blue Harbour. Yeah, that's fine. I'm quite happy to swim those waters. Well, your dad keeps trying to give you. Yeah, he does. Occasionally, I'm offered cast offs of of Blue Harbour. Um, Oh my god, yeah. Bruce Willis is dressed like your dad in this film. He does, he's got the same haircut and the same clothes. I've not noticed that until now. And yet, he looks more like Samuel L. Jackson. (laughs) Your dad's not. Not Bruce Willis. Bruce Bruce Willis is not more forgiving to Samuel L. Jackson, but. For, 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 for a pale Irish man, my dad has a striking similarity to some of the tracks. Okay, next question. Would you remake A Good Day to Die Hard? No. I think you'd get away with it. What do you mean? Like, you, you would remake I think it and you... repackage it as, as just another film? No, I think you could... Well, see, this is an interesting thing. Every Die Hard film up until that point had a different source material than a script that originated as a Die Hard idea. Right. So Die Hard 1 and 2 are based on different books yeah. where they've retrofitted the characters yeah. into being Die Hard films. Mm-hmm. Uh, Die Hard 3 started off as a script which is kind of more like a Lethal Weapon buddy movie. Yeah. And then they decided to put John McClane in as the central character and then change things around it so it worked. Works really well. Brings our second best Die Hard villain in. Mm-hmm. Hans Gruber's brother. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Irons. Yeah. Yeah, lovely. He is lovely, yeah. And this this film... You've got a surprise antagonist who's not a surprise at all. Mm. For a long time, you think it's a Putin-style figure. Yeah. It turns out it's a, an uranium smuggler who's pretending to be a political prisoner. Yeah. And it, it never makes sense as a plot of the film. No. Because uh, if our Putin-style figure wanted to kill the political prisoner, he just fucking would. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just fucking would do it. Yeah. That guy would be off at the gulag yeah. with a bullet in his head. Certainly wouldn't be taken to a courtroom surrounded yeah. by journalists yeah. <laughs> where it, he could be heard. Absolute madness. It's like, and the plot of the film is driven by, we need to find a file. And I think if we've experienced anything over the last 15 years with Snowden and Jeffrey Weidlin and Julian Assange and Chelsea, is it Manning? Chelsea Manning, yeah. Yeah. No one gives a shit when you whistleblow. Mm. You ruin your life. No one cares about the information revealed. No one, no, no one loses their job. No corporations crumble. Nothing really happens. Yeah. You can whistleblow all you like. Capitalism wins. Mm-hmm. Global economics and geopolitics wins. Don't fucking whistleblow. All you're doing is giving yourself a hide into fucking nothing. Yeah. So the idea that there's this file floating around. Physical this, file as well, yeah. one would assume. A MacGuffin in, that gives it because from the 80s. In a filing cabinet yeah. in Chernobyl. I mean, who's going to be shocked if Jay Courtney rescues this file, gives it to the CIA, they hand it off to, I don't know, the New York Post, mm-hmm. and everyone goes, do you know the dictator in Russia with ties to criminals? Mm-hmm. He's done some dodgy stuff in the past. <laughs> it's not going to be a world-changing event. No. It's not worth the effort. It's quite a relief in the end when it turns out it's all just a swindle to steal some old uranium. Yeah. So there we go. But going back to uh, the question, would you remake it? I think you'd get away with Die Hard 6 being him meeting a new son 
and you saw going Nick. to Russia and having a far better adventure. Oh, the same character, not like a bastard child. A new, no, a new son. <laughs> but the same character. Yeah, yeah, John, John, Just John McLean actor. Jr. Okay. Actor. No, no one would notice. Right. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it's a franchise that needs that much like kind of uh, connectivity between the episodes. No. It would need John McLean though, because the problem with this, though, I don't think there was ever any intention, unlike something like Indiana Jones, where there was always a hint that. The fourth one was a kind of passing of the torch. They yeah. said maybe, oh, Shia LaBeouf could be the next Indiana Jones. I mean, Couldn't we, have Jai Courtney be it, because it would be a different franchise, because yeah. he's CIA. Yeah, exactly. No, um, Again, I think you're probably better... It would have been more interesting if maybe in this episode, just one little glimpse of Mary Elizabeth Winsor doing her cop training. Yeah. And then Die Hard 6 could easily be her in a, in a John McClane situation. Saving her lovely ginger-haired boyfriend with lovely long curly hair, <laughs> whose chest is exposed by terrorists. <laughs> um, God, that's, we we should get Hollywood on the phone. Yeah. Um, okay, where would you pop James Spader into the film, darling? Is it becoming a regular question? <laughs> it is a regular regular question. It might become when you where you popping Chris Pine into it because you seem to have gone well off Spader. And into the lovely scent of pine. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want them to make a film with James Fader and Chris Pine. That's just, just desperately want that to happen. Well, what about a Star Trek Four where Spader is the Romulan of it, the Klingon or the whoever the villain would be? Oh, yeah, I could go for that. Or just yeah, make another Star Trek. That would be nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I maybe cut the Cole Hauser character rather than him being his partner. If he could have an older one, mm, early buff. Yeah, because, mm. you know, Spader mm. don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you could make one change to the film that you think would improve it yeah, completely, what would that change be? Well, I hinted at it earlier, and we've just literally hinted at it again now, in that I think it would have been better if Mary Elizabeth Winstead had been the, other ma- the, the main character, yeah. and that she'd been the CIA agent, and, but not the CIA, because the CIA are in scum <laughs> and I, I find it very difficult to watch anything where you're meant to be on the side of the CIA yeah uh, so maybe, maybe she's she just could backpacking some, she could be a journalist or something yeah, that, yeah. Sense, yeah. that would make much more sense mm. and and because she, I don't I, I don't love her like you do mm. but she's got a lot of personality that they, they did have quite a nice rapport in the car he seemed yeah. to be quite you know and, and they'd have that fatherly it'd be a different relationship because it'd be a father-daughter relationship I think that would work much better for someone like Bruce Willis yeah I agree um, Die Hard 4 works because the young man he's stuck with for most of the adventure is complete chalk and cheese to him yeah uh, and that would have almost worked better it turned out Justin Long was his son and that's why he's picking him up because it's his son involved in the hack and he's got to protect him Mary Elizabeth Winstead and Lucy McLean is brilliant casting. It works really well. They've got a really nice energy against each other. I agree. Yeah. It would have made more sense to take what worked from Die Hard 4 rather than what didn't work from Die Hard 4 and embrace that. And that relationship, I think, is one we would have wanted to see more from. Yeah. I can't believe there's a version sitting on that, that DVD that yeah. has zero Mary, fourth build of Mary Lives Winstead in it. It's, it's bad. Yeah. Um, okay, we're, get, we're getting to the very, very end. Um, is A Good Day to Die Hard better worse than bad boys <laughs> well i thought about this a couple of times whilst actually watching it right and i would assume that anyone who enjoyed this film die hard five mm. probably regards bad boys as like the zenith of filmmaking right. <laughs> so i would... it feels quite bayhemy like yeah, michael yeah. bay like i i agree with that i think michael bay has got maybe just a bit more sense of fun 
comic booky excess. Yeah, but ultimately it's moronic. Okay. So I would say I the one thing I would agree with people who enjoy this film is that Bad Boys is a better film. Okay. So yeah, it's worse than Bad Boys. I would say this is the worst film we've watched so far. Uh-huh. Certainly, certainly not in terms of production values. I mean, a lot of money's been thrown in it. It, it looks like a very slick production, but all the life and soul and enjoyment has been edited out of it yeah. or soundbited over. It's been dubbed, recut, all manner of things, and it's almost exactly the opposite of a diehard film. Yeah. A diehard film is a beautiful ensemble of cast working, chiming off each other to make a brilliant action, drama, comedy extravaganza. Yeah. And this is just a lot of ruckus. Uh-huh. I was relieved when it was over. I think we paused it a couple of times watching it and just had a little breather from just how unrelentingly blunt it was. Yeah. Um, so, like, usually a cash-in has horrible signs of they haven't got the cast back or they've, you know... They've done a couple of scenes that feel like they fill a trailer and the rest of it's very cheap. Mm-hmm. This is a film where I can't see any scene that's particularly cheap, but there's certainly not a scene that's inspired or entertaining in any way, apart from maybe sitting in a traffic jam in Moscow with wonderful Pasha Lichnikov. <laughs> Lichnikov. Um, that is that. Um, yeah. That's the end of that episode. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Do you want to tell them what's on? What we're doing next? I don't know what's next week. Well, it's a film. Because it changing. I, well, it's a film. I do you know what I checked whether a good day to die hard had moved in the rankings in the hope that we might do something different. <laughs> yeah, just, just literally stave off the execution. <laughs> I mean, it's probably we, we've got over a hump, and this is the only film that I'm dreading. Yeah. Dreaded rewatching. Well. Uh, and. It's, it's it's an absolute turd of a film yeah. but next week when we do it it's a film you really enjoy oh. I don't like a film with so much wrong with it there's going to be a lot we can discuss and yeah. it's a film we've watched relatively recently so, what, we're, so what is it? it's Supergirl darling <gasps> Supergirl's so low oh my god oh you're in for such a treat <laughs> I love uh, so we, we will record our Supergirl podcast very soon and put it out into the world uh, let's watch it now no <laughs> no let's watch something good uh, um, but until then I'm on vacation I, I'm isolated oh you're isolated okay yeah. bye, bye.